Didn't like cutting up the teaching from last week because it would be nice if time would allow to do the entire chapter. You hear me mention this a lot. Please remember when the Bible was originally written, there was not the chapter breaks, there was not the verse breaks. We have put those in many, many years ago. And what happens is sometimes it kind of breaks up a little bit of the section. So it looks like we're jumping right in the middle of this, which we kind of are to an extent. So we're going to backtrack just a hair, make sure we're all on the same page, and then move forward in this. But before we do that... Let's pray. As always, Lord, you wrote it. You teach it. Let your spirit lead, guide, and direct. We pray for just the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge at this time, the gift of teaching that you would let your Holy Spirit lead. Help us not just to hear it, but to apply it in all we do and say in your name. Amen. The theme from last week was tradition trumps God's word. This idea that the Jews had all these rules and regulations. And the Pharisees came from Jerusalem, about 80 plus miles away, a multiple day trip, come up to Jerusalem. And they said, basically, your disciples do not eat properly. They eat with unwashed hands. And we talked about how the Jews had added all these rules and regulations, 186 pages on how to be clean and 35 pages explicitly on how to wash your pots. And the whole point was that they had turned something in to this rules and regulations and traditions of men and had nothing to do with God's word. If you go back and read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you will not find 186 pages on how to be clean and you will not find 35 pages on how to wash a pot. These are things that they all added. And Jesus said, here's the problem. You're focusing more on traditions than you are God's word. Now, we do not live in a society here today that we have all these religious rules and regulations. Guys, it's still out there. If you go out there and start talking to people and witnessing to people, you're going to run into different denominations and groups and cults, etc. that do have a lot of rules that have nothing to do with the Bible. And you've got to be very, very careful about that. If you can't back it up as scripture, we have to stop and say, why are we believing this? Why are we doing this? It has to be the foundation on God's word. Once again, the extreme 35 pages on how to wash a pot. Jesus says you've got the wrong emphasis. He says your emphasis is on the outside rather than being on the inside. Take a look at verse 6. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And we spent a lot of time last week talking about that idea, that idea they were hypocrites. On the outside they looked good, they sounded good, but their heart was not the Lord's. And then we went and talked about how the most important thing is letting the Lord have your heart. He's not looking for more religious have-tos. He's looking for a relationship with you, and he wants your heart. So that's how we got to this point to where we're at here tonight. Verse 8, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many are such things you do. So verse 9, here we go. And he said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your traditions. He says, you guys don't care about God's word. You care about your traditions. Now, just stop and think, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody when I say this. Some of you have been, may have been raised in a denomination or a church that cared more about the idea of what man says than what God says. It's a dangerous place to be. The emphasis has to be on God's word. The emphasis has to be on that, on what the commandment of God says in verse 9, not on the traditions of men. And he gives another example here. We talked about pot washing last week, washing at hands. Look at 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you may have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God, 
then you no longer let him do anything, excuse me, let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. So he just gives a couple examples here. You guys are more concerned about outward cleanliness than your heart. We still see that today. A lot of rules and regulations we jump through, and there's a lot of religion that people go through, but their heart is not right with Christ. And even to a smaller extent, how often do we even do that? Sometimes, like even out here, we put our emphasis on how we look on the outside rather than is our heart right with the Lord. I know this happens because you guys have told me this happens. Now, it doesn't happen with Dawn and me anymore because we drive separate to church because now there's two services out here. Uh, We haven't gone together to church now, and I don't know how long we've been doing two services, probably 10 years or so. So it's been a long time since her and I have come to church together. But I can remember times where there was tension, tension, tension. You pull in the church parking lot, fake the smile, tell the kids to be good, and straighten your tie and go in. They're concerned more about the outward appearance than you are than what's going on in the heart. We were talking at our Thursday study, men's study last week. Just about how there's that great verse in the book of Peter that says, Men, if you're not right with your wife, if you're mistreating your wife, that your prayer life is hindered. That's a powerful statement. That if I'm not right with Dawn, that that means my spiritual life is going to be hindered. Now, that's not told her. That's told to me as the man because I'm the leader of the house. And we were just talking about the different jobs that we do, etc., and about how... With a lot of jobs, you can leave your, your spouse at home, you leave your wife, and maybe you're upset, you're bothered about something, and you go and you put your eight, nine, ten hours in, and then on the way home, you think, okay, I should probably try to make this right, I'm coming home. I've told examples before that, you know, that verse really hits me, and there's been times I've gone to a small group study or counseling session, I'm sitting out there in my car, and before I go in, I'm calling my wife and saying, listen, I have a Bible study to teach her in five minutes. We've got to get right with each other. Because I don't want to go fake it. I hate faking it. And so I want my heart to be right. I want peace with you. And I want to have peace with God. Because Peter tells me, I'm going to mess things up. Guys, God wants your heart. Not your outward. He wants your heart. So he uses another example right here. This idea of Corbin. This idea of verse 11. What it was is this. He says in verse 10, we're supposed to honor our father and mother. And if, in fact, if you curse your father or mother, let him be put to death. That's pretty straightforward. But then in verse 11, what happens is this. The Jews set up this word, this idea, Corbin, this idea of gift to God, dedicated to the Lord. So what would happen is this. Is your mom and dad are struggling. Let's say maybe your father's passed away and your mother is a widow now. And so she comes to you and says, I really need help financially. Remember, rewind the clock 2,000 years ago. They didn't have the social security. They didn't have the retirement. So she has nothing. And she comes to you and says, can you help me? If you really wanted to, you could look at her and say, I'm sorry, all that stuff is Corbin. It's dedicated to the Lord. I'd love to give it to you, mom, but I can't. Well, what are you using it for? I don't know, but I gave it to God. So I'm just going to hold on to that extra money and I'm going to hold on to my house and I'm going to hold on to my possessions. So then what would happen is if the religious leadership would come to you and say, hey, your mom's struggling here. She needs stuff. You could say, sorry, I dedicated everything to the Lord. They would step back and say, okay. It was a way to get out of doing things. It was a way of get out of helping. And what Jesus is saying here is this. Verse 10, God's word is clear. Take care of your parents. But you guys say, look at verse 11. But you say, I gave it over to the Lord. So therefore, verse 12, I no longer have to do anything. What's the result of this? Verse 13, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down and many such things you do. 
Jesus is saying, listen, you guys are trying to do everything you can to get out of serving the Lord with your heart. And you're focusing on outward religious appearance. You're focusing on outward religious obligation. And you think that's going to be enough to get you right with God. I won't take you there because we went there last Wednesday and we went there on Sunday. But Amos chapter 5 where God says, I hate your feasts. I hate your sacrifices. I hate your worship. Because you're doing it for you and not for me. And what does God want? He says, God wants your heart. This is what's going on right here. 14, when he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, these are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is saying here, listen. It's not the outside, guys. It's the inside. This is what we're going to talk about for a while. It's not the outside. It's the inside. Now be careful with verse 15. If you guys are familiar with scripture plucking or buffet Christianity, you can make the Bible say anything you want. I've had people quote to me this verse before to back up a lot of illegal activities. A lot of drugs, a lot of stuff like that because the Bible itself says nothing from the outside can defile a man and so therefore that that drug I'd like to take that is completely natural made by God, used by me, and according to the Bible here, therefore it can't defile me. This is a great example in Mark seven fifteen of one word, context. Make sure you always understand the context of the verse. Another great example is back in the Gospels in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus says, if your hand offends you, cut it off. I don't see any of you guys walking around with just one hand or plucking out your eyes. You understand the context of that God is not saying that literally. The context of Mark 7, verse 15, is in the idea of religious washing of hands. Important to know context. So if you take that verse out and you want to apply it now to nothing on the outside can defile me. So therefore, when I go get drunk, I'm not defiled. When I go do this, I'm not defiled. When I go watch this, when I do this inappropriate thing, I'm not defiled. Because Jesus himself said, no, you're not understanding the context of it. The context is in the religious obligations that the Jews had put on themselves to make themselves righteous. And therefore, by not doing it would make themselves unrighteous, Jesus says, you guys aren't getting it. You're focusing more on religious obligation than a relationship. That's the danger. doesn't take us too far to realize that this is still very evident in the world today. Just go start talking to any false religion. You're going to see a huge emphasis on religious obligation and not a relationship with God in any way whatsoever. And to be quite honest, even under the umbrella of Christianity, you will run into people that really focus on religious obligation versus a real relationship with the Lord. They're missing what Jesus is saying here is he wants our heart. And what he's going to do now is he's going to take the rest of this that we're going to do tonight, 17 through 23, and then talk about the heart and how it's really the heart that defiles things, not what happens on the outside. Let's take a quick stop right here, though, to make sure that we're all on the same page. Any quick questions about anything that we've covered here thus far, the religious obligations, the Jewish rules and regulations, and what Jesus is saying here is about how he wants our heart. We're all good?
Just let me let me clarify. You're asking me, as a wife, the verse and Peter that talks about if the man doesn't treat his wife appropriately, it's going to interrupt his prayer life. Just want to make sure we're all on the same page there. First Peter three verse seven. Yeah, yeah. Mark, I I don't blame you, man. Mark, you want to know where the verse is on submission? I can tell you that right now. All right, anybody else got any quick questions here before we go on? Okay. Now, guys, Jesus is cutting right to the heart, folks. I'm going to tell you that right now. We got a half hour of this. Verse 17. And when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable, and he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murderers, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within a man and defile a man. Key word there, guys, is the idea of the heart. Verse 19, it does not enter his heart. Now, I'm not going to go back and repeat everything from Sunday and Wednesday. I'll just make a quick reference again. The Lord wants your heart. If you're a note taker, you can write this down. It's Mark 12, 28 through 30, where the guy comes and asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's what the emphasis is. Jesus wants your heart. Now, if you're not going to get that point then nothing else here matters. It really doesn't. Because if you're going to say, okay, yeah, he wants my heart, I'm going to go read more right now. Okay, good for you reading more, but unless she has your heart, what difference does it make? You're just going to start jumping through more religious hoops. You're no different than the Jews from 2,000 years ago where you're going to make sure every pot is washed perfectly, but your heart is not right with the Lord. So that's why Christ says right here, in 18 and 19, it's not about what's going in. It's about your heart. And now he's going to take this to the extreme here once we get to Acts. Because if you remember correctly in Acts, where Peter was now told to go eat whatever you want because all unclean are clean because it's not about religious obligations. It's about Jesus, if you remember that in the book of Acts. This is absolutely, utterly life-changing. For us, it's not. It's not. The closest I've ever dealt with to religious obligations on how to wash a pot is I'm not allowed to load my dishwasher at home because Dawn says I don't do it right. There's probably 35 pages on how she wants me to do it, and I can't do it right. I am thankful that I get up in the morning and his mercies are new every morning. I'm thankful I get up and Matthew 5 is still there saying that Jesus did not come to destroy the law but to fulfill it. I'm thankful that the veil was torn from top to bottom to give me access to the holiness of God. I am thankful that through his mercy and grace that we can even get together here tonight, worship him and pray and and talk about his word. We don't have to worry about all those things. And that sounds so much easier. But then you read 21, 22, and 23, and he lists 13 different things. The deal with your heart. And sometimes I stop and say, can I go back to the 35 pages of how to wash a pot? Because if I rewind the clock 2,000 years ago, as long as I kill some animals and look good, 
then I think I'm right with God. Now, Hebrews tells me I really wasn't, but at that moment I thought I would be. Now, with reading the New Testament, Jesus says, James, it's not how you wash your hands, it's your heart. James, it's not about how much money you give or how much Bible study you do or how many people you witness to or how much you worship. It's about your heart. I realize how much more serious this is, how much more severe this is. There's a reason why the Bible uses the term being sober-minded. It's not talking about not being drunk. Yes, that's the idea of sober, but there is a seriousness to what we do because when I read 21, 22, and 23, I realize, wow, Lord, You want me to be a walking example of Jesus Christ, not only on the outside, but also on the inside. I'm willing to bet most of us here tonight on the outside look pretty good. Now we need to get right to the heart, so let's see what happens here. 21. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed. First one, 13 different things here, depending on your translations, your wording may be a little bit differently. Normally, when I'm preparing a message, I like to read uh, King James, New King James, NIV, NOT, and RSV. And so I try to get all the different wording there as much as possible. So your wording may be a little bit different. I may throw out some little other words in there to make sure we're all on the same page. First one here, evil thoughts. How do outside actions start? Outside actions start with an inside thought. Before I do anything sinful on the outside, it always starts with an evil thought on the inside. That's just the way it is. Before I say something inappropriate, I'm already thinking it. Before I do something violent or wrong, I'm already angry and upset. Before I steal, I've already in my heart coveted it. I mean, you just go down the list, guys. For the outside action to happen, there first has to be an inside evil thought. Once again, put yourself in the mind of a first century Jew. As long as I wash my hands the right way, follow the Sabbath, do all these rules, do my sacrifices, if I'm a good Jewish guy, go to the temple, make sure I go where I'm supposed to for the three feast days required, doesn't matter what my heart does. I can look at whatever woman I want. I can think whatever I want. I can make any excuse I want. I can have greed. I can have covetous because those are all inside things. And God's not worried about inside things according to my perception as a Jew 2,000 years ago. Jesus is completely turning the system upside down. If you go back and you read in Paul's letters in Romans, especially in chapter 6 and 7, he says the sin that got him was covetous. Paul at that time was the Jew of Jews. But it was an inside sin that got his attention. Paul is out murdering people. That didn't get his attention. Covenant got his attention. So the first thing we have to talk about is our thoughts, our mind. You know, have you ever watched any of those movies where someone has the power and the ability to read someone else's mind? That's like the scariest power I would ever imagine. I would not want anybody to be able to read my mind. And I sure don't want to read your minds. Evil thoughts are awful. They're out there. That's where it starts. There's a reason why when you look at the armor of God in Ephesians 6, what are we supposed to have? The helmet of salvation. If my mind is always thinking about God and what he did for me on the cross and salvation and the glory of God, my mind's not going to wander to sin and lust and flesh because I'm always thinking about Jesus, the helmet of salvation. That's why we should put that on. So if your mind likes to wander... Please remember what it says in 2 Corinthians. Take every thought captive. Because if you don't take those thought captives, I tell you, those evil thoughts are going to take over. And it's going to get ugly really quick. What's the next one? Adulteries. 
Marital unfaithfulness. Not only the physical act of marital unfaithfulness, but if you look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, even as a man lusting after another woman is adultery. Once again, years ago, I've never cheated on my spouse, the good Jewish man would say. Jesus comes and said, yeah, you've ever lusted after another woman? Well, I've never actually done anything. Jesus said lusting after her is just as much as doing it. That changes everything. We live in a culture today, in a world today, where the idea of looking at people of the opposite sex is really just considered normal and acceptable. And when you really look at it from Jesus' perspective, God's perspective, this idea of letting our mind and eyes wander to somebody who's not our spouse. Oh, Lord, help us. Next one, fornications. Sexual morality. This is basically any type of sexual sin. The immorality that's just out there, the images we can look at, the things that we can do before marriage, after marriage, outside of marriage, sexual immorality, fornications. And it's once again amazing as a society that this has become accepted. And even within the church, where people are coming, knowing what they're doing and looking at is sinful and wrong, and they stop and they almost have just become so callous to it, they just don't care. There is a danger in allowing that sexual morality, that fornication, to take over. Next one, murder. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 5, even if you hate somebody, it's murder. I would assume most of us here have never committed murder. But I bet you've been enraged in somebody in your heart. I bet you've really had a hard time getting over things and you've been angry at people. According to Christ, that's murder because it's a heart issue. Theft. Stealing, taking things that aren't ours. It's amazing, once again, as believers, how we kind of water down theft. Most Christians I know would never think about going into Walmart and sneaking something out under their coat. Never would. But it's amazing how we do everything we can almost, or I shouldn't say almost, sometimes illegally because we don't want to pay taxes. Or how maybe the break at work is supposed to be 15 minutes and eh, we take 20 now, some of you may say that's legalism, that's whatever, that's not theft. I don't know, guys. Go study out that word a little bit. Remember, you work for the Lord, not for man. The Bible makes that abundantly clear in Colossians 3, 23 and 24 there. And so if God said, hey, James, take 15 minutes, I should probably take a 15-minute break and then get back to it. We've got to be careful of those things. Next one, covetness. Some of your translations, greed. This is a desire for more. But if you really study it out, it's also a desire for you to have less. It's a really interesting word. I want more, but I also want you to have less than me. It's almost this competition type of thing going. And if I have more than you, that's great, but I also want you to have less because that way I can feel like I have even more. And it's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. This is why the world throws commercial after commercial after commercial to of things that you can't even rightly afford. We don't watch much TV at home, actual TV with the commercials. Very rarely do we ever watch that. But it's amazing how if we ever do watch a program, there's actual commercials on there. How many of them are car commercials? So my boys were asking one time, Dad, how much does a new vehicle cost? So I was trying to explain to them. And then they did just so simply, honestly, childlike faith said, well, then who's able to afford that? I mean, I've, you know, I'm 42, and for the last 10 years... The world has told me every Christmas, if I loved Dawn, I'd get her a Lexus. Who's actually getting a Lexus for somebody for Christmas? If you actually know somebody, I'd like to meet them and become friends with them. But who really is stopping and saying, I'm going to go buy a Lexus? 
for somebody for Christmas. But that's what the world tells you. And you've got to put a really pretty bow on it. And it's always really nice snow and everything like that. I'm just telling you, this is what the world throws at you, this covetousness, and you can never have enough. Never have enough. Next one, wickedness. Some of your translations may say malice. Malice is a really interesting word there. It's basically wickedness with action. It's now, I'm not just going to think about it, but maybe I start planning it, and maybe I start wanting to act on it, and maybe it gets a little deeper here. I mean, we're going from evil thoughts now to this very all-encompassing term of just wickedness. Boy, guys, we are a wicked, wicked group of people in this world. We are. Next one, deceit. We do. We lie. Even as born-again believers, we stretch the truth. White lies, half-truths, half-lies. It's absolutely amazing how much we just try to just spread the truth just a little bit there. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was coming out to a small group study, and I got a late start. I always hate being late to a Bible study. And I was going to be pretty close, and I was going to be a little bit late, and I had to swing through the gas station there in Hamler to pick up the donuts for the study, and there was a train. And I saw the train, and the lights were down and everything. I thought, oh, this is good. Because even if I stop for one second, I can say, guys, there's, there's a train. Do you see how that works? And I'm just telling you, that's the thought that went through my mind. So I'm coming up by the, by the Hamler Reservoir, and I get to the, right there, the intersection there of 109 and 18, and there's the train, there's the lights, I'm getting ready to make my left, and I thought, oh, good, there's a train. I turn, and the bar goes up, and I don't even get stopped for a second. And I was hoping if I just got stopped for one second, I could say in all honesty, there was a train. It's deceit. It's just flat out deceit. That's what it is. Next one, lewdness, lustful desires, lascivious. If you've got a good old King James out there. Flat out immoral behavior. It's a pretty big all-encompassing term. You may be looking through this list and saying, well, I don't see drunkenness. I don't see this. Okay, well, I see lewdness. And it's basically saying, I'm going to let the flesh do what the flesh wants to do when the flesh wants to do it. That's not of God in any way whatsoever. Next one, an evil eye. Some of your translations say envy. That's the same word, root word, used back for wickedness and malice earlier. This is an interesting word. It's jealous attitude with almost a begrudging heart. It's not necessarily covetousness. It's now I'm jealous and envious and it makes me upset. What is an example of this? You're just having a nice drive out in the country and you decide to go a different way home. And as you go a different way home, you drive by this house and you look at that house and it's a nice house. It's better than your house. They have three-car garage. They have numerous cars sitting outside. And the cars are nicer than your cars. The landscaping is nicer than your landscaping. Everything about it is nicer than you. And instead of you just stopping and admiring that house, all of a sudden now you don't like those people. You've never even met them. You know absolutely nothing about them. They could be born-again, solid, on-fire believers that have adopted 30 kids from foreign countries, and they have a Bible study every night in their house, and they have every widow living in the community with them. You do, but you don't know that. You can't stand them. What is that? That's an evil eye, guys. That's envy. 
I have made in my heart this begrudging, jealous attitude towards you, and I see what you have, and I just don't like you now. Now, we struggle with that, folks. We do. We stop and we look. I I got a new-to-me car uh, a couple months ago. My car was ready to go, and it was just time to get something different, and God blessed us, and we got this new-to-us car. And so I was at the dealership looking at the car, and there was a brand-new vehicle there. It was a truck. I just went over and looked at it. Sticker price, $68,000. I already decided whoever bought that, I don't like you. I mean, that's just why I just came to the conclusion. Now, some of you are sitting right here saying, I bought the truck. Okay, well, I love you, but I'm saying hypothetically, that's an evil eye. I don't know the situation. I just see that you have something that I don't have. I'm jealous of it, and I don't like you. The guy gets the promotion at work, and you don't. Evil eye. You just don't like him. You don't like the person that gets the better grades than you, evil eye. You don't like the person that's more talented than you, evil eye. You just don't like them. Because there's an evilness and an enviness. And what happens is, God is saying, that is revealing your heart. That's really revealing your heart. Next one, blasphemy. Some of your translations say slander. It's the same word in the Greek. When I am speaking, insulting God, it's a blasphemy. When I, I wasn't, Lord. I wasn't. <laughs> When I am speaking or insulting God, it's blasphemy. When I am speaking or insulting man, it's slander. And it carries the idea of words to injure somebody. Think about that, folks. Think about the words you say about other people. And the verses came to my mind, and I can't remember where it's at right now. And I wish I could share it with you. But it talks about speaking ill of people in your tent. In your tent. It's amazing how we won't speak ill of people in a public setting or a lot of it, but what we will allow ourselves to think in the privacy of our bedroom about people. Or sometimes what we'll say to only to our spouses about other people. Dawn and I really try to not have a lot of conversations about other people because it can get ugly really quick. And we've got to catch ourselves sometimes. Because it's amazing how here's this person you know, you love, you live with, and you've been around, and you have this openness about everything, and all of a sudden you can just talk about people. Well, it doesn't count. It's my wife. Still not right. We've got to be careful of that blasphemy. Pride, arrogance. You've heard me make this comment so many times, you know where I'm going to go with it. God will work with murderers. God will work with thieves. God will work with adulterers. God won't work with pride. If you go back and list the big wigs of the Old Testament, you have murderers and Moses. You have thieves and Jacob. You have adulterers and David. But he won't work with pride. Pride is a dangerous sin. And next one, foolishness. You've been with us on our Sunday morning studies through Proverbs. Foolishness, the absence of God's wisdom. It just blows my mind when I see somebody who claims to be a Christian constantly make life decisions without seeking the Lord, his word, his Bible, prayer. It's just foolishness. And they get themselves in situations, and they come and they say, hey, would you really pray for me? Why? I'm in this tough situation. I'm thinking, man, why didn't you pray before you even got into it? That's not of God. It's not glorifying to him. It's foolishness. Thirteen different things there. Twenty-three. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Once again, the context of this chapter, this section, it's the religious ritual things the Jews were doing to be right with God. And Jesus said, it's not about that. It's about your heart. 
And he lists 13 different things here. What do we do with this? Can you go with me to 2 Corinthians, please? 2 Corinthians 7. As we're going to 2 Corinthians 7, anybody got any quick questions about the list there that we just went through, making sure we understand? Yes, John. It is pride. Uh, if you go to Isaiah 14, you don't need to turn there. It is called the I will uh, statements of Lucifer. Uh, it says, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Isaiah 14 there, that's, that's pride where Satan says, I'm going to be God. So like I said, God can work with anything else. As far as I know, when I look through the Bible and I see these men and women the Lord has used, I see every type of sin almost, just, just pride. He hates working with pride. Any other quick questions about the list of things that we went through? All right. Now, if you're like me, you get to the end of that list, and I don't know about you, I'm pretty sure I knocked 13 out of 13 out there. Didn't do a real good job with that. And I looked at that and I said, Lord... What a wretched man I am. I mean, it just reminds me of what Paul said in Romans. He finishes Romans 7 with this verse of what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? He goes, but I thank the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Isn't that amazing? And not only that, it says in the book of Hebrews, he will cleanse you from the guilt of it. So he has set me free from the sin, Romans 6. He has cleansed me from the sin, 1 John 1. He sets me free from the guilt of it, Hebrews. And he makes me a new creation in Christ. That's amazing. But what happens when all this junk, this filth, is still there? I still battle this. Take a look here at 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all unfilthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's a great verse. Let us cleanse ourselves from all unfilthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So, okay, Lord, I want to be cleansed in you because my flesh is filthy, and I'm going to be holy in you in the fear of God. See, this is where we run into problems sometimes of chapter breaks and um, verses. Because if you would say we're reading 2 Corinthians 6 as devotions, and so you would read 2 Corinthians 6, and you finished it, verse 18, you'd be done. To be quite honest, you come back, and let's say you didn't hit devotions the next day, so it's been a couple of days, and you pick back up, and your bookmark says, oh, you're in 2 Corinthians 7. You start in 2 Corinthians 7, and you say, therefore, having these promises, beloved, and you just kind of move on. You've you got to put the whole chunk together. So if I look at verse 7 and I see cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh. And if I see therefore in verse 1 and one of the first points you will ever learn when it comes to teaching. If you see the word therefore, find out why it's therefore. So therefore, what? I need to back up and pretend that chapter breaks and verses aren't there. So you jump back to chapter 6 and you start in verse 14. And it says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? You see the theme he's building. Righteousness and lawlessness don't go together. Light and darkness don't go together. 
What accord has Christ with Baal, false god? What part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I think we forget that the temple in the Old Testament had armed security. So if you as a leper tried to get into the temple area, they would kill you. If you were a woman trying to get into the court of the men, they would kill you. If you as a foreigner wanted to come in, they would kill you. So if I tried to, in the temple, try to take an idol that I created, and I was going to run into the temple and go into the Holy of Holies and set it on the Ark of the Covenant, there's no way. I, I have uh, an email that I've sent myself, and it's a stone that they have found that was an inscription that was on the temple of Jesus' temple, where it basically is a warning. If you cross this line, we're going to kill you. So I look at 16, I'm a temple, and I set idols up. That's just wrong. So therefore, 17, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I don't know where we got this doctrine and teaching from that as Christians, that the best way that we could ever represent Jesus to the world is to dress like them, talk like them, act like them, be like them, watch the exact same shows they watch, do everything they do. Just don't cuss as much. Just don't show as much skin. And just make sure that you have a good marriage. I look at 17, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. One of the things I tell my boys all the time is, listen, We are raising you to be Christians, and I hope when you get older, you choose to be a Christian. But this is how we're raising you, is to be Christians, and I want you to choose it on your own. And since we're raising you to be Christians, you're not going to watch the same shows everybody else watches. You're not going to get the cultural references. You're not going to play the same games. You're not going to see the same movies. And certain words that are acceptable in other people's homes are not going to be acceptable in our home. Why? Because come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. 18, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, see now, no chapter break. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all unfilthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I'm willing to bet here tonight, let's, let's take our list of 13 things. I sure hope there's no one planning a murder here tonight. Hope there's no one here playing an adulterous relationship. Hope none of you are thinking about going to a store and stealing tonight, committing theft. Hope none of you are planning to do the rest of this list. But how's your heart? Because I want to do what verse 1 says of 2 Corinthians 7. I want to cleanse myself from all unfilthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And I'm not the one doing it, because remember, I've already quoted to you 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's the Lord that does the cleaning. He's asking me to have my heart be willing. What I want to close with is this. Can you go with me to Psalm 51? We've kind of lost the idea of just reading God's word. One of the small groups I go to, um, Renee Amber goes to it a few years ago. He had this Bible 
that uh, has no chapters in it and no verses in it. And I looked at it, and at first it really bothered me because, you know, obviously the way our minds are entwined is just this idea of verse-chapter. And then I started looking at it, and I actually got a copy of one myself, and I find myself on Fridays a lot. Friday is my uh, Sabbath day. I shut my phone off and just, you know, get a chance to spend time with family, and I have extra time, so I really try to say, Lord, I just want to read. And I like to get into that Bible because you don't get stopped with chapters and verses. You just read it like a letter. So when you read the book of James, instead of saying, oh, I read James 1 and 2 today. No, I read James today. Because you read the whole letter like the way the letter was written. And it really gives you a context. I heard a teaching recently where the pastor said they were getting ready to go through the book of Revelation. And they decided, well, you know what it says in the book of Revelation? Blessed are you that read this book. Right? And this guy stopped and said, I don't know about you. I want to be blessed. So they got the church together. And they just all took turns and read through the entire book of Revelation. Just read it. Because who doesn't want to be blessed? So I I took you to Psalm 51. And this is going to be hard for me. Because the way my mind works is every single verse I stop and I just analyze it. But I told myself this is what we're going to do to finish tonight. We're just going to read Psalm 51 straight through. And we're just going to take this psalm and actually read the context of it and I'm going to try really hard. And I'm not going to be able to guarantee I can do it. Because there's certain verses I want to stop and say, did you just read that? Did you see what I see? I'm hoping that you can, for the next couple minutes, just follow along with me. I'm reading out of New King James. Hope you can follow along with me. You can see there in the first part of it, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went into him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Do you remember the story? David at this time is, is an older man. He, he may have been... Late 40s, he may have been 50 years old. He had multiple wives. And he sees Bathsheba bathing. He says, I want her. Calls her over. Sleeps with her. Tries to cover up the sin with it. Finds out she's pregnant, though. So now he brings home her husband. And uh, he says to Uriah, hey, why don't you go home and see your wife? And Uriah is such a humble man that he won't do it because the rest of the men are out in battle. You know the story. So David does everything he can to make Uriah sleep with his wife. Tries to get him drunk. Everything, Uriah won't do it. So finally David says, I have no recourse. I just need to kill Uriah. So he has Uriah killed in battle. Then David, being the great guy, he says, let me comfort Bathsheba. She comes over, becomes his wife. Oh, look, we have a honeymoon baby. And next thing you know, she's pregnant. And this goes on for a year. Finally, Nathan the prophet shows up. And he gives this great speech to David, sets David up, if you will, and calls David out on his sin. And David just simply says this, I have sinned against the Lord. Now that's all you read when you read the story in Second Samuel. I have sinned against the Lord. But then you come read Psalm 51 and you see David's heart. And that's why I want us just to read tonight to see. If if you wonder, what does a broken heart look like? And I don't mean broken heart like relationship. I'm saying a heart that says, Lord, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge my sin. I, I see those 13 things that you mentioned there. And I see how of a mess I am. But you're a good God of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Let's try this. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make known, make me Make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and the whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Let's stand, please. Lord, we don't want to talk about it. We want to live it. We don't want to jump through religious hoops. We want the grace and mercy you give. We don't want to underline the verses. We want to go out and passionately show people Christ. Help us, Lord, not just to talk about this, but Lord, if there is an evilness in our heart, as your Holy Spirit speaks to us right now, let us be broken, let us be convicted, let us fall in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and be forgiven. And Lord, let us walk out of this building tonight with the passion to do what is right and good, not because of our own goodness, but Lord, because we want to glorify you. Glorify you in all that we say and all that we do. You do not desire sacrifice. You do not delight in burnt offerings. You want our heart, Lord. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, in your name, amen. Hey, you guys have a good week. God bless. Please remember Special Olympics going on tomorrow. Keep that in prayer. And you guys have a good week and God bless.